step in here with you and you're in the shock, um, just know that we've got some resources for you right out here in the foyer. If you'd like to go check those out and bring those back to your seat to kind of help your student, uh, your kids engage this morning, feel free to get up and go look for those now. And, uh, and we're going to get started with the sermon here in just a minute. But before we pray, if you need those, uh, Gary's got those right there at the door. And um, you can go get one of those. We're glad you're here. If, if this is your first time, there's a card in the back of the seat in front of you or the seat uh, back behind you. If you would fill that out, we would like to know uh, just a record of who you are. And if there's any way we can serve you, you can indicate that. And we'd love to get to know you better. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there is, should be a Bible under your seat or around you somewhere under one of the seats. Uh, you'll need that Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one with you and keep it uh, as a gift from us. So you'll need your Bible here in just a minute. Uh, if you don't have one, please uh, look around and help those who don't have a Bible get a hold of one and get one in their lap. Before we get started in the sermon, we want to pray. We always try and pray before every sermon for a couple of things that pray for the what Paul calls all people and our authorities civil authorities around us for the cities for the communities around us we pray for them and then we pray for another church pray for another church that God would be God and be known through his people in other locations around us and that we wouldn't be in competition with them, but that we would be partnered with them for his glory and for his namesake. And so y'all pray with me, and then we'll, we'll get right to it. Father, I want to pray uh, in the direction of the smaller communities around Greenville this morning. Um, it seems that uh, by your grace, you're allowing a lot of the communities around us, the smaller community around us to grow. There's a lot of opportunity for growth, people moving this way, a lot of economic opportunity in these smaller communities, a lot of um, transition taking place. And uh, we pray for the communities like Caddo Mills and Roy City and, and Campbell and Commerce and just these just all the other communities that are close by that are in transition and growing. And uh, we pray that you, knowing we pray, that you can turn the heart of a king and that we don't depend on civil leaders for our mediation to you or for salvation, but we pray that you would have your hand in that and give the leadership of these communities and cities wisdom for the benefit of the community so that your gospel will move out in peace and that there will not be distractions to your gospel being moved out swiftly so that Jesus would be lifted up in these communities and, and people would believe on Jesus because of the peace and the leadership by your hand. And we trust you with that. And God, we also want to pray this morning for Ridgecrest Baptist Church so thankful for the heritage that Ridgecrest has given this church, for what they've passed on, for the, the missional mindset that they have passed on to us when they decided to plant a church on this side of town over 10 years ago. 
Thank you for that heritage. And thank you, God, for what you're doing there. A lot of the new things that you are doing there in that church and the, and the leadership for their burden to be the church as you've designed it. And we pray that you would continue to send qualified elders and qualified deacons to lead and bring relief and preach and teach at that church. And that you would continue to be lifted up and that truth would be protected at Ridgecrest. And that Jesus would be believed on in this world, continue to be through Ridgecrest. And we pray that for us as well. And that the people of God at Ridgecrest would continue in their faith and not quit. And we pray that for us this morning as well. We're thankful for this time together. We trust you with this time together and with this message and with this worship and with our offerings. And we trust you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Whenever I have opportunity to preach, I like to try and follow uh, our kind of our guide and our conviction here that we unpack a passage and we unpack a book of the Bible and stay faithful to that and not just jump around to whatever topic that we feel like preaching or that we feel like you would like to hear about. Now, last fall, I did preach uh, a, a series on marriage and family, and so we got away from that a little bit. Uh, it was, we think, fruitful and helpful to engage that topic of marriage and family, but still, we, even then, we exposed what the Bible says about it. We didn't just take a topic and apply it and uh, pull a passage to say what we want to say. And so, uh, for me, I try, I'm trying to work my way through uh, the pastoral letters to Timothy. And um, it was actually a year and a half ago, the fall before, that I last preached on 1 Timothy. And we looked at God's design for the church. God's design for this, this is specific purposes that he gives us and instructions that he gives us for who the church is to be and how it's to be. And so we'll be returning there. If you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the last time I preached, we preached out of 1 Timothy, it was on elders and deacons and the church, how the church is to be led. And there's three verses at the end of chapter 3 that we're going to look at this morning to wrap up chapter 3. And then in another year and a half, maybe we'll get to chapter 4. It's really beautiful, the timing of this, that we're finishing up chapter 3 today because we wanted to take this opportunity to introduce and talk more about and get specific and kind of gear you up about this church plant that we've talked about off and on for the last couple of years. We, We have had a burden to multiply the church, and you'll see why here in a minute, hopefully, but we felt called and especially at the elder retreat that we had last year, to stop just talking about it and hoping for it, but to really hold ourselves accountable and seek God's face and work towards, more specifically, planting a new church. And so I want to give you some some more specifics about how that is unfolding and what's going to be unfolding in the next five, six weeks. Because you're going to see more and more and hear more and more about that. The elders... At our elder retreat last year, we, um, we've kind of put a goal on ourselves to hold us accountable that this new church would be gathering and, me- and meeting uh, in mid to late sep- 
2015. We were thinking September. He said, that's, that's what we want to set that goal, that this new church, we want to put that on ourselves so that we do the work between now and then so that this church is gathering, worshiping, taking the Lord's Supper, preaching, fellowship with one another, that they're gathering together as a body mid-year 2015. So it looks like that may happen if the Lord wills it. Um, I want to give you just a, little, a few specifics about that uh, at the great risk of whetting your appetite and you wanting to know more and more and more. Uh, there's only so much that I can tell you at this point that would be profitable. But let me start with the men. The men that God seems to have sent to lead this new church. Men that we have known for years. We've partnered with them in the gospel for years. That we have tested and approved over the last six to eight months who these men also have been tested and approved in the places that they currently serve and are currently preaching and teaching and leading. And so we're, we're humbled and excited and grateful at the men God has sent to lead this church. I'm not going to give you the names just yet. So there's the, the big disappointment because I can see it on your face. But one of those men will be here May 3rd and 10th to preach. And his family will be here and at Crosspoint through this late spring and summer. Another one of the elders that will be leading this church will be here during the summer at Crosspoint. And so on May 3rd, if you want to just jot this down, on May 3rd, when this first elder comes to preach here to us and, um, and we'll be here with his family through late spring and summer, uh, that Sunday night we're going to have a meeting with he and his family and us and hopefully with those of you that God has burdened to be a part of this church plant, whether that be a one-year commitment, a two-year commitment, or you say, no, we're going and we're gone. And um, so we'll talk more about that, but just to make a mental note there that these men are coming here. They're coming here and they're going to be with us for a season with the hopes of this church planting in late summer. And so that's the timeline, if the Lord wills it that um, at the end of the summer this, this uh, church would be gathering. Location. Where? Where are you going to plant a new church? You know, Ridgecrest planted this church just right down the road. And some would have, may have said, well, why'd you do that just right down the road? But it's been beautiful over the last 10 years to see what God has done with faithful new work. And hopefully at the end of the morning you'll see the, the importance and the value in planting new work regardless of the location. But what we're thinking, kind of the, the idea that God is the burden that he's given us and these men, is west of here. And we don't know a whole lot more. Uh, west of here, in some of these communities, maybe uh, seems to be where that Hunt County, Collin County, Rockwall County comes together. These, these communities that are gaining an identity there and a stronger identity and more people. So that's, that's where we're thinking without, really don't know much else than that. So as we think about this, and if we're going to, at Crosspoint, give birth to something, if we're going to start something new and multiply and hopefully give birth to a new family, a new corporate body, then we, we need to know why we're doing that. We need to know how that's to be done. We need to know God's design for the church. And we need to be reminded that ourselves this morning, 
because of our tendency to drift and take liberties with his design. And we need to do that now so we know what we're doing in the next eight months as we hope and pray that this church gets started. We need to know God's specific instructions and his specific design for how that's supposed to unfold. Why are we multiplying? Why are we starting a new church? And before we can ask you to be a part of the how, I want us to know why. And this passage in 1 Timothy, I think, gives us a great view to the why. Why would we do that? Why would we start a new church? So back to 1 Timothy. Let's look at the last three verses of chapter 3. Verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. In verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing this down, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Paul's heart here is that the church be led with specific design. These are more than just suggestions that he's been talking about in these first three chapters. We'll look at those in just a minute. But the first three chapters have been, this is how you're supposed to be who you're supposed to be. This is how God's church is supposed to be done, for lack of a better term. And so these are, these are more than just suggestions. And Paul is saying, and, and he, he's saying, if I can't be there in person. I don't think I'm going to make it there. I wish I could be because this is so important that I'd really rather tell you this face-to-face. That's how important this is. I really would rather not just write these down. I'd love to gather you up and show you. I'd rather gather you up and speak with vigor. I'd rather speak so you could hear my tone. I'd love to tell you this face-to-face. This is that important. But just in case I don't get there, I want you to know how to behave. Now, that word behave, when you think of the word behave, and when I think of the word behave, we think of what? We got the kiddos in here today. We're all hoping for what this morning? Good behavior, right? For listening to mom and dad's instruction. Quiet, still. We're wanting our kids to act, to behave good, right? We think of behavior, we think of good and bad. And it's not that simple. It's much more specific And it's much more comprehensive to Paul. Hear that. He's not just talking about how one person acts either good or bad. He's talking about specifics, and he's talking comprehensive here. This Greek phrase, know how to behave in the household of God, this behavior, uh, it would read more like this. In hopes that you would have the know-how, I want you to have the skill. I want you to have the know-how in order to accomplish a goal. That's important. Don't miss that. Paul's saying, I want you, I wish I could do this in person, but I can't, so I'm writing this down because I want you to have the know-how and the skill in order to accomplish a goal. That's what this behavior means. 
If you think about my day today or my day last Friday, how I spent my money, how I spent my time, who I listened to, who I chose not to listen to, how I rested, how I didn't rest, how hard I worked, what I put my hands to, what I thought about, what I prayed about, those things would all encompass my behavior that day. Do you see it? And so it's more comprehensive. It's more specific than just being good or bad. And that's what he is unpacking in these letters to Timothy, and we get a glimpse of it in chapters 1 through 3. How to behave. Paul is writing these things so that the church would know, have the know-how to be the church. So let me just give you a summary of where he's been in 1 through 3. It's been a year and a half since we've looked at any of that. Let me just give you some of these things. What are these specifics? What are these instructions? These things that are more than just suggestions on what's, what's it supposed to look like in church. And here are some of the ones that he's given us. In, in chapter 1, he says, Don't let men teach that are just looking to gather a crowd. Don't let men teach and preach that are just looking to gather a crowd. You have to tell those men... One of two things, stop doing that or leave. That's, that's not easy. And if you think that we're not able to drift in that direction, the difficulty for any man who stands at this pulpit or sits behind this pulpit and preaches, the great temptation is that God would, people would get caught up and, and what God's doing through me in this moment. When, when there's a crowd, or I'd be lying if I said it's, it's, it affects us when there's uh, fewer people or a lot of people. It does, it affects. And the, the great temptation is I want people to get caught up in what God's doing through me in this moment. I want that. That's a, that's a desire that we fight. And if we don't hold, watch this, if we don't, if the pastor and the elder does not hold that thought captive, what we will do is we will set the gospel aside. We will do it. We will set the gospel aside in order to say whatever it takes to get you caught up in what we're saying. And that's the temptation. And Paul says, you do not let those guys. They talk about genealogies and charts. You see that word in chapter 1. They're being very impressive because these guys have a lot of knowledge. And people are getting caught up in how smart these guys are. And they're so impressed by him. So the temptation is for the elder and the pastor to be impressive and for you to get caught up in what we're saying. And Paul says, don't let men do that in your church. He tells preachers and teachers, you love people by preaching the gospel to them. No illustrations or fireworks. No creative, funny, engaging. No, you truly love people when you consistently preach the gospel to them. That's how you love the people as a preacher. Consistently preaching the gospel to them. That's the design. That's what it should look like at church. That's what preachers should be doing. He goes on to say in chapter 1, the steel rod for every sermon that you hear is this. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. The steel rod, you know, you see all this construction going on. You see the steel being put up before the concrete and it's holding that, those, that pavement together is that steel rod. And what holds, should hold every message together is the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. I'll read it to you. 
The saying is trustworthy, and, and this is verse 15 of chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And he says that on the heels of telling the church, don't let people preach unless they're preaching Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the steel rod in the sermons, in your preaching. That's where we should end up in every sermon. Jesus. Preachers should remember, he tells Timothy, that they're feeble. And you should remember that. That preachers are feeble. You have to watch your life, but remember that you've been appointed. Remember the prophecy when, you were, when hands were laid on you. Don't forget that. And you watch your life. Preachers are feeble, but they've been entrusted. We must remember that preachers and teachers have been entrusted with the gospel, but they are also feeble. He says in chapter 2, pray for all people. Pray for your civil leadership. We just did that just a moment ago. But he says so in, in light of the fact that Jesus mediates us to God, not politicians and civil leadership. And so the church should pray for everybody. We should pray for our communities, and we should pray and engage those communities, and we should pray for all those who are leading civilly in government. Any time, we should pray so that the gospel would move into it, not so that they would help us be mediated to God. We're, we're not trusting what's going on outside this church for salvation. We're not hoping that they will make our life better, that they will make our salvation any more rich. We trust that Jesus is the one that mediates us to God. In the church, Jesus is the one who saves us and mediates us to God. And we pray for civil leadership. We pray for all people. Why? So that this truth would engage and affect the cities. Do you see that? See the order there? He says at the end of chapter 2, men should lead in the church. And I can remember the first time I preached that, because he says some other things that are pretty alarming in there about women. And so when I preached that message, I felt like I was holding a grenade and I pulled the pin. I'm trying to get the pin back in while I was preaching that passage. <laughs> Men don't always lead. And it's heartbreaking when women step in, because we won't. And it's not God's design. And so, early on at Crosspoint, we learned how hard that is. And we've seen men go, you know, not for me. And the heartache of them leaving. Not just this church, but the faith at times. Because it's just not for me. They don't take their role as shepherd of their home seriously, and they don't take their role of serving the church and leading in the church seriously. And he says, men should be the ones, he says at the end of chapter 2, hands lifted. Men with hands lifted. Men yielded to God, leading in prayer. Men should lead the church. These are not suggestions. This is God's design. And then he goes into chapter 3. You may remember from a year and a half ago, you may not. Plurality of overseers. Anytime he mentions, Paul mentions, they're being placed overseers in the church, he speaks of it in plural terms. Multiple men 
overseeing the church. Men who are accountable, approachable, ultimately responsible for the souls in their care. As an overseer, I am responsible for what you hear, for what you're believing, for what you're listening to, for what you're not listening to, for what you're protected from. That oversight is a weight that is hard to explain. But these men must see themselves and be overseers, ultimately accountable for what you're hearing. And that comes out more in chapter 4 where he says you have to protect what you say. You have to protect sound doctrine because if you do that and you watch your life, you will save yourself and those who hear you. Salvation contingent to to a degree upon am I watching what I'm saying? Am I careful with how I'm living? You know, preaching is tough. I'm not going to sit up here and say this is easy. It's hard to preach and for Ben to preach consistently throughout the year. Preaching is tough. Praying for you is tough. The the discipline of prayer is hard for anyone, but for us to discipline ourselves to continually pray for you and to be aware of what's going on in your life. And that third primary element of what makes an overseer is that oversight. That's the one that's taken years off my life. That's the hardest. That's what brings real weight to this preaching is that being accountable and responsible for your soul. That's what adds weight to the preaching. That's what keeps us up at night. What are they believing? When, when your circumstances go south and you're hurting or you're in trouble and you're listening to emotion and your marriage is hard and we want to just scream you know, what's true to you And sometimes we can't because sometimes you don't want to hear it. And sometimes you do and it's beautiful. And it feels like everything in your life is a cannon shot at you. And machine guns firing at you. And then when it comes to our oversight in your life, it feels like we've got a straw (laughs) trying to get to you to listen to what's true. And that weight is not easy, but that weight is good. The church must have multiple men overseeing it. Overseeing it. And then he goes on to deacons. I can tell you this, there's not much oversight, and there's not much preaching, and there's not much prayer going on at a church if they don't have deacons. Not much oversight, or maybe it's impaired oversight. Not much preaching and not much praying is going to be going on unless deacons are bringing relief to that body and relief to the elder body. Serving the church, managing the church, seeing its finances, looking for how the the body and the people need relief so that they're not distracted and they can hear the preaching and listen and walk in it. And that doesn't happen without a band of deacons who faithfully serve Acts 6 says, full of spirit, full of wisdom, full of power. And I can tell you there was a day here where I think our oversight was impaired. And probably the preaching too and the praying for you and the oversight was impaired because 
The deacons weren't here yet. They weren't established yet. We had a few, and they were growing. We were growing with them. But we are enjoying a season right now where when Scott and Ben and I get together, I can honestly tell you, we talk about our sermons, we talk about your life, and we pray for you. And there was a day where that was the last five minutes of every meeting because we were doing everything else. And deacons bring relief to the church and they clarify the role of the overseer. God's church should have deacons. God's church should have overseers. Multiple plurality. Now you may be saying, look, that's, that's cool, but you know, there's a lot of other churches and some of them don't have elders. And some of them, maybe the, they don't have deacons or that many or they just have one overseer or, you know, there's a great temptation to take liberties with these designs. And we, we have known and seen the heartache when we drift from his design and when we take liberties with his design. Some of the things that can cause us to take liberties with these things that I just mentioned, chapter 1 through 3, is efficiency. We're in America, right? We, we can make it faster and we can produce it quicker and easier than anybody. Sometimes better. Efficiency can be a temptation. Well, what, we just, what we, he just described in the first three chapters is not efficient. To, to spend time walking through your circumstances and speaking in truth and praying and taking time, time, a lot of time, with what we say and what we preach to you. To study and make sure we have sound doctrine. To care for what we say and what you believe. It's not efficient. Improvement was another Temptation to take liberties with God's design. Think about how much has been improved in our world since this writing. Since God gave his design in these chapters for what his church is to be. Think about how many things have been improved. I mean, the list is long, but I could just mention two of the most important. Transportation and indoor plumbing. Two things right there that we can say, well, we got it better. We've improved. So, if, if, we can, if we can bring indoor plumbing and electricity and transportation now, and we've improved that, couldn't we take some liberties with this? Couldn't we? What if just one guy was overseeing and a bunch of other guys were just the deacons? Or do you really need deacons? I mean, why, don't, why do you have to pay so much attention to what you're preaching when not many people are going to want to keep coming to hear that? How are you going to grow? If you just keep preaching the gospel, that's not going to be an improvement. And so improvement can be this temptation to take liberties with his design instead of just trusting it. If you go up to somebody who poured their heart out in an inspirational talk before your people, and yet it was just so that people would be inspired and, and the, the people would feel good about it and there was no gospel... You'll hurt their feelings if you tell them not to do that anymore. And if they do it again, if you ask them to leave because they won't listen, you're going to hurt their feelings. You're going to get a black eye as a church. It's not easy. It's not efficient. But we don't need to take the liberty to try and improve on God's design. People-pleasing was the other one I thought of. People-pleasing... This idea that church is supposed to be this place of this, we give people this false hope for a utopia. 
That when you come to church, you should leave here feeling really good about yourself and really good about your circumstances. That's what church should be. And that's just people-pleasing. And he goes on in 2 Timothy, he calls it tickling ears. People will, in the last days, gather for themselves preachers who will tickle their ears. Tell them what they want to hear so that when they leave church, they'll feel good about themselves and good about their circumstances. And that's not preaching. And Paul addresses it. And so we can't take liberties with people-pleasing. We can't take liberties with improvements and efficiency. We have to be careful. We must be careful. Now, three things, and then we'll wrap up. Three things that he indicates here in chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Household of God. We must look at this through the lens of it being a family. Church as a household. Church as family. The second one is the church as a pillar and buttress of truth. And the third is that the mystery of this all is great. If we're not in awe of what's happening, then we will drift from his design and our worship will be impaired. Household of God. We must see this through the lens of family. Must see church as the, through the lens of family. And secondly, the pillar and buttress of truth. And the mystery is great. I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. We must remember that this is a family and it's a household, but before we go any further, it's his household. It's his household. It's not ours. This is not Ben's church. This is not Brad's church or Scott's church. This is not the deacon's church. This is God's. It's his family. Turn to Acts 20, verse 28. Paul has pulled these Ephesians elders, the same church likely that he's writing to in Timothy, but this is before Timothy got there. Okay, this is, he's talking to these elders at Ephesus, but this is before Timothy had gotten there to lead. Look at verse 28. He's pulled these guys aside and he's warned them, and this is what he says to the elders there. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained, purchased, bought with his own blood. This is his. And because it's his, we don't take liberties in how we behave. It's his church. And it's his household. It's his family. The household is a family. How we move financially is less like a company, less like a bank, less like a business, and more like a family. How we invest our time, our resources, our budget is more like a family and less like a com company. The church is led like a family. Ephesians 5, if you remember from that marriage and family series in the fall, this fatherly role that the elders play in church, that, that mothers, Titus 2, that older godly women teach and nurture younger women in the church, it's family. Household relationships are family relationships, not a club. This isn't the choice of the month. 
This isn't something you approach as a consumer. You're looking for a family. You're not looking for a new car. And what fits you? You're looking for a family where, where the leadership is loving and nurturing and leading well and protecting, just like a mom and dad would. And where the kids are following and listening and obeying and, and they're together. You can choose the club that you're in. You can choose who gets to come to the club. You can choose your friends. But you can't choose who's in his household. With the exception of the elders having to watch for wolves, Paul says in Acts 20, with the exception of that going on, you don't get to choose who's in his household. So the question becomes less, do you like people at church? Do you like everybody in here? Do you like each other? It's not the, that's not the question. The question is, will we love each other? Like family. You don't get to choose who's in your family. But do you love them anyway? That's the key. This is a family. <clears throat> success, okay? Think in terms of this church plan. What is successful? What, are you, what would you say? Boy, that's successful. I mean, the first thought that hits most of our minds is that a lot of people would come to it, right? It would grow really big. And if it grew really fast and really big, success, right? That's American way. But success for a family is not the size of the family. Success for a family is not measured on a spreadsheet. Success for a family is not measured by how much money you have as a family or the things that you own. Success is not me measured in family by the amount of people or the amount of money in it. Success for family is measured by how they love each other. Do they keep being a family? That's success, right? They, they never stopped being a family. They were always a family. They always saw themselves as family. They didn't quit each other. Success, right? They were faithful. That family was faithful and never wavered even when it got hard. And family has hard conversations with one another. Family has discipline, right? Simple. I mean, if, you, if any of you had a, any semblance of a morning like ours getting ready for church, perfect opportunity for discipline, right? <laughs> Families involve discipline, instruction. They involve sticking it out. And they involve sticking it out even when you disappoint one another. They're known, they're known and they're knowing of one another. The church is a family. And efficiency is not a great value. Because some kids contribute more. Getting ready for church, right? Some kids contribute more. Some kids aren't ready or mature enough to contribute to the family yet. Some get sick. Some aren't as mature or ready to help out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make them any less family. And so we are this, this soup <laughs> of levels of maturity. We're this soup of different experiences and different hurts. But that doesn't make us less family. Success for the church is a success for family. Pillar and buttress of truth. We want to give birth to a new family in this church plant. We want to give birth to a new pillar and buttress of truth. So what does he mean by this pillar and buttress of truth? Truth does not originate at City Hall. 
or D.C. Truth doesn't originate in Congress. Truth is found where God is. And truth is found in his church. And this pillar of truth, a pillar, think about what a pillar does. It holds something up. A pillar holds up the roof of a building. Okay? The top of a building. A pillar holds it up. Supports it and holds it up for all to see. And we want this new church plant, we want us to continue to be a family that holds up truth and proclaims truth consistently and is careful with what we're holding up. So that's the pillar. The pillar holds it up. What is a buttress? It's a funny word for something that protects, something that fortifies. The church holds up the truth, and yet it also protects it. We're careful with what we say and the doctrine that we teach you and what we believe about Jesus and about his church and about his mission. And so when something false or something distracting comes, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ came to save sinners and is on mission and alive. Anything that that is harmful to that, the church says no. No. Don't, Don't say that here. Don't believe that. That's not true. And of course... Pillaring seems to be a little easier than buttressing. Because buttressing means what? You gotta have, you gotta say no to somebody. You have to protect. You may have to confront. And you may have to ask somebody, man, you, you can't believe that. That's not true. Let's look at the Bible. That's not true. And those aren't always easy conversations to have. The other really amazing thing about pillars and buttressing is that the pillar and buttress of truth is not the elders. It's not just elders. This pillar and buttress of truth is you. We are a pillar and a buttress of truth together. And you are a pillar and a buttress of truth in your neighborhood. You and your family are a pillar and you hold up and you protect the truth at work. So it means you don't just proclaim good news about Jesus when you have opportunity, but when you hear something that's not true, you say, no, that's not true. But can we talk about that? And we do it with gentleness and respect, giving a defense of the hope within you that you know to be true. So gently and respectfully, we hold out truth and we protect it. And so this pillar and buttress sounds like a big building, right? And it's not. The cool, mysterious thing about this is that these pillars and buttresses are moving, going all around. It's mobile, and it's agile, and it's what Jesus told us to do. Go ye therefore into where? All nations. I want this pillar and buttress to be teaching everywhere, baptizing. Take the supper in remembrance of me. I want it everywhere. My name will be believed on in the world, pillar and buttress of truth. We hold up this gospel as truth, and it's a little harder sometimes to protect it. But you are, your family, is a, both a pillar and a buttress of the gospel. Not just the elders and not just the church staff. You are a pillar and a buttress of truth. And then he goes on to say, great is the mystery of godliness. What does he mean by this great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness? He's talking about Jesus And this little phrase here that rounds out this chapter is probably a song, a poem, 
that they would have known, that they would have either known the poem or they've known the song. He says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He's talking about Jesus. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. A little paraphrase of that to kind of bring it into clarity here, because it is a poem, and so they don't always use words that we would understand and the inferences that this poem had for them, but this is how they would have understood that. Jesus came in flesh. He was affirmed by the Holy Spirit. Angels wish they could have what we have in Jesus. Angels saw everything going on here when he came. And they wish they could experience what we experience in him. He was proclaimed to the nations. Jesus is known, widely known. The whole world is the goal and the target. He is believed on in the world. People actually believe on him. They believe on him. And now, he's not here anymore on earth, but he is seated and ruling and reigning. That's the mystery. And how do people believe in him? How do people proclaim? How do people hear this proclamation, believe on it? They do so because of the church. They do so through the church. Dorothy Sayers, of the last few weeks, reading up on this lady who taught at Oxford. Her dad was an archbishop in the Anglican church 100 plus years ago. And she uh, did a lot of writing. And she talked a lot about and wrote a lot about in her novels about our humanity, vice, God's divinity. And she captures something that she calls the three great humiliations of God. Three great humiliations of God that she sees. That God humiliated himself in three ways. And let me be clear. He wasn't humiliated. He humiliated himself. This is willful humiliations is the only thing I would add to that. Three ways that he humbled and humiliated himself. Number one is that the Son of God, the Son of God from John 1, who, the Son of God who will light up the new heavens and new earth and we won't need a sun. We won't need a moon. We won't need stars. That Son came as a helpless baby, a Jewish son who had to be fed and cleaned and diapered. Humiliation. He came in flesh. The second great humiliation was a public execution on the cross. And she says the third great humiliation of God was that he left his mission and his reputation with us. With us. How humbling and mysterious and amazing is that? that he would leave his reputation and his mission with the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to show you two more verses and then we'll be done. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm sorry, verse... 7. 
This is Paul talking again to the Ephesians. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Watch this. So that through what? The church, the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. How is this great mystery of Jesus made known? Through churches. Through churches. Through the likes of us, his reputation stands. Through the likes of us and empowered by his spirit, his reputation stands and his mission goes on and people believe on him. Why? Because there's churches planted. There's churches there in that community. Proclaiming and protecting. Proclaiming and protecting. Why then would we not want to plant new churches? Why would we not want there to be new works everywhere? It's, it's the motive and the mission behind the three families that have been sent out of this church. It's to go overseas. It's the motive and the mission. New people, a new people, gathered people worshiping and baptizing and teaching, protecting and proclaiming. Why would we not? And how humbling is it that he would allow us, right? Allow us to start a church. What a privilege that we have that he would, he would allow us to be a part of a new work. Us. Turn to Romans 15. Last one. Romans chapter 15, verse 18. Romans 15, verse 18 through 21. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the mystery of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. How could Paul say from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum? That's a huge region. How could he say ministry is fulfilled in that region? There's no way that he could confirm that everybody there trusted Christ. What he means is, in that region... There are churches. There are new churches planted. There's pillar and buttress of truth. There are mission centers in that region. I want to go and I want to plant where there aren't any or where there isn't any in that area. I want every region full of mission centers and churches. And so that's why we go. Humbled by the fact that he would use us to do it, Humbled by the fact that a ministry would be fulfilled by a corporate body being obedient 
to plant new work, not, not building on anyone else's foundation, but being obedient to multiply new work. It hit me this morning when I was driving up here that it's Palm Sunday and how humbling it is that he would allow us to be a part of something like this. And it's just so fitting that our king rode into Jerusalem. Not in a parade, not with battalions and guns and swords and fanfare. He rode in on a donkey. Hosanna, the king of the Jews, on a donkey. And I hope that we will continue to be humbled by a king that will ride in on a donkey. And that will also say to us, pillar and buttress of truth, I'm going to build my church, I'm going to build my kingdom on the likes of Peter. When he told Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. I'm, I'm, I'm entrusting my reputation and my mission to you all, empowered by my spirit. And I hope that we're all humbled by that and that that's why we move. That's why we plant new works. And I hope that you will be attentive to the spirit in the next few weeks about what your role will be in that. Or will your family go and be a part of it for a season? And as we roll out more specifics, we can talk more about that. But why would we not want the household of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth, the mystery revealed to all people, some haven't seen, but some will see, through the church? Why would we not want to plant new ones? Let's pray, then we're going to take the supper. Father, we are humbled by, again, that your name is above every name. Your name is above our name, our family's name, our church building name, our address. Your, your name is above the city. Your name is above every name. And we're humbled that you would choose to bring in your kingdom, reveal the mystery of Jesus through us. And I pray that that weight will hit us and we will continue. Help us by your spirit, God. Help us continue to pay attention to you and pay attention to your design. Help us, Father. We are surrounded by temptations to take liberties with your design. And we ask that you give us wisdom from above. Give us your spirit's help to not take liberties with that design. And that we ask you, Father, to bless our efforts in this new work to not build on anyone else's foundation, but to set free and set loose your gospel by your design. Help us to be faithful with it by, with your Spirit's help. I pray that as we take this supper, we take it in faith. And that as we move in to other parts of worship that we give faithfully and consistently without trying to earn anything. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's pass out the elements. As we hope and dream about <clears throat> a new family being born and started somewhere else, I, one of our hopes is that there'll be a church that remembers weekly 
It's a, it's a church of remembrance. They're just stirring one another up by way of reminder and that they are faithful to take the Lord's Supper to remember that steel rod of every sermon that he came to save sinners. If you're enjoying that today, this supper is for you. If you're enjoying that Jesus is your only hope and that he came to save sinners, if you're enjoying that, this supper is for you. If you don't believe that, if you don't have faith in that, then don't take this supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at a table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and then when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying this, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The purchase, remember Acts 20, 28, the purchase of our salvation. If you're enjoying that, take and eat. Take and drink. Let's stand together.